this reminds me of my first experience in radio was back in the early 80s. People with disability and mental health. There's always controversy with us. The mysteries of the mind and consciousness. And we might get to the bottom of something or we might start something new. We're going to run the gamut and we're going to have a good time. Waking Braves. No, not Waking Braves. We're Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves? Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves. Welcome, folks. You're listening to Radio Eastside. Hello, folks. I'm Riley. <laughs> and I'm John, and this is Breaking Waves, which is a show for the neurologically divergent or diverse or different. Differences abound. And today's topic, topic for discussion for today is animals, in particular, pets. And our relationship with them, human relationships. And we have a lot of animals in our lives. They're all around us. Um, They live in the trees. Uh, We have them in our fridge. Mm. Um, uh, And we have them uh, living with us. So we're going to explore how that kind of uh, symbiotic relationship can happen, or rather, the way manifestations of it uh, between people and, and animals. Yes, and the idea that we've got covered so many times before is that life affects life, and animals affect other animals, and everything affects everything. In fact, the environment affects us and animals are part of our environment. And we all rub off on each other. Um, And we've covered that before too, right, Riley? Yeah. Like, if I'm spending a lot of time with the kind of dog that will just, you know, eat stuff real quick, then I feel like that influences me to eat things really (laughs) quick, like just That's like if you go and live in England, you know, you, you might pick up an English accent, but you'll actually start eating like your pets do, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I just thought. Mate, no doubt things like that can happen. Depends what, you know, depends on your connection, I guess, to the critter, the critters that are around you. Yeah, uh, and getting into what you said about environment, I mean, there's evidence of that happens in the kind of cross-species adoption thing because um, what you'll see is that if a cat gets raised by a dog, say it grows up from its infancy and you know grows up with a litter of other puppies, then this cat, for all intents and purposes, will behave like a dog and run with the pack and you know be uh, far much more dog-like than so than a feline who didn't have such an upbringing. So. Yeah, and that's a bit of a contradiction to the idea that we've got these genes inside us which actually tell us, you know, which actually dictate over every aspect of our our existence. And if you want to understand uh, what we are in essence, you know, if you g- examine this, uh, this chemical code that they find in our cells, uh, somehow or other you can uh, explain everything, which seems to be a bit far-fetched. Um, and in fact, with the emergence of the science of epigenetics, 
the work of Professor Bruce Lipton and other people pioneering in the exploration of life, he found that uh, more relevant is the environment and the surroundings, which include other living things, and they have actually more of an effect on what's going to happen at a genetic level than the pure existence of uh, one gene or another gene. Kind of like a toolbox to get activated by, by stuff that's going on around us and our interaction with other creatures uh, is uh, constant. Uh, they're all around yeah. us from the bugs in the air to the animals we use in all kinds of ways um, and I guess we rely on them less now um, than in uh, past years when they were a source of power for us. Uh, we used to, you know, pull our, our carts and, um, and our ploughs and uh, help us to get around a bit faster or easier. Um, and we rely on machines to do that now. And, I mean, it's almost like they've become a bit of a curiosity, um, whereas in the past they were a necessity for our lives. That's interesting. Um when um, when did this all begin, John? This whole pet concept. Well, if you have a look about uh, the kind of stories that are being told on this subject, you'll find a debate about, like most things, uh, when did it start? And the debate I've seen is between whether it started in Asia or Europe, who had the pets first. I tend to think that as long as there have been people and critters, there have been interaction between people and critters, and sometimes that interaction would form a relationship that we would commonly call these days um, a pet, more than just a fuel source or a power mm. source, uh, more an, an emotional, a spiritual even connection. Yeah, and of course, uh, such connections are different across different cultures, and the kind of regard in which animals are held in our Judeo-Christian culture, it's uh, a sinful kind of pagan idea to venerate or like worship an animal, but I believe. In uh, India, cows are regarded as untouchable. Like you can't cook and eat a cow if you're practicing a, a certain faith. I should probably look that up before we go on. But they venerate cows absolutely as kind of deities, um, or an association with with deities, spiritual entities. You know, I guess th this comes from a time we've talked about before when uh, man's uh, thinking about the world around him really included a lot of um, spiritual creatures. Um, all creatures were seemed to have a spirit. In fact, all things uh, were seemed to have a spirit. And this is uh, in modern times called panpsychism. And this goes beyond actually critters. It goes to the level that all things, all, uh, all things, all stuff basically has a, a psyche or a consciousness to it. And apparently this is, yes, as we said, a, a religious tradition, this idea of cows being venerated. And it's interesting because it ties into really ancient kind of stuff, you know, like African paganism, ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Israel, ancient Rome. And so if there is something to this, if there, if there is some kind of sacredness about cows, then 
we've definitely inverted that idea with what we've done with the cattle industry uh, in Western culture because, you know, the amount of slaughter going on there is unreal. So, Riley, you've had a bit of experience with domesticated animals, haven't you? Yeah, that's right, John. I've been doing pet sitting since uh, 2016. As long as I've known you, you've been looking after people's pets. That's right, and uh, most for most of the time it's dogs and cats, you know, standard stuff, but sometimes I end up looking after more unusual... Well, the most unusual pet, I think, would be a rabbit that I looked after. And what was noteworthy was that he was he lived indoors and he was toilet trained, which I didn't know you could do with a rabbit, but... Yeah, um, that's very cute. Yeah, you, you seem to... Um, you seem to be um, not really like a dog walker. There's plenty, plenty of them around, but you, you seem to um, attract a lot of clientele that have pets that are quite needy, that have... Uh, separation anxiety and um, <laughs> a little scaredy cats or, you know, just nervous, nervous disorders or... Um... Yeah, well, a lot of the... Most of the dogs that I look after are really old. So there's... In fact, a couple of them have died quite recently just of, you know, being old. But um, I... And that adds an element of anxiety to the whole thing because... Just by virtue of them being so old, they need extra attentiveness and and care and this kind of thing. And then, yes, um, some of them do uh, have a lot of separation anxiety. Did the rabbit get anxious? No. No? He was chill. Yeah. <laughs> Just so, chewing on a carrot. Yeah, sometimes he would want to... Um, come over like he'd come over like he wanted some interaction and that kind of thing but he he was pretty relaxed about um you know it's not like a dog where they get really upset if they're left alone too long I mean obviously it varies from animal to animal because we know that with with Ivy um she's doesn't show separation anxiety yeah Ivy's my dog and she's um <laughs> She's quite amazing. She has um, not a jealous bone in her body when we're out and around. She really doesn't take exception to me showing affection yeah. or attention to other animals. Nothing went wrong for Ivy, you know, because a lot of dogs, it's kind of like, oh, something, <laughs> there's some kind of issue here, like some kind of trauma well, Yeah, going I think on. it might be about the early, early, the same as it is with most people. It's about those formative years when we're, when, when we're little, you know, tiny sponges for what's going on around us and we're basically being wired in so many ways. Socialising of, of dogs is really important. It's, it's um, you know, there's lots of dogs around where I live. I live in fairly high density living and there's lots of pets, you know. There's lots of pet owners in Sydney. You know, you can really tell a hell of a lot about the person if you just look at the dog, uh, how the dog's behaving. And I love that show. Um, it used to be on. I remember it was on a Foxtel years ago. The Dog Whisperer, and he Caesar was, Moran. He's the yeah. guy, and he was really. Um, he's like the actually very similar to the um, Hell's Kitchen 
Ramsey. Ramsey. Yeah. What these people do is they give therapy to humans. Mm. You know, it seems like the show's about restaurants and, and cooking or, you know, the the dog whisperer was about badly behaved dogs, but he would always get to the job and the first thing he'd do is he'd look at the owner and go, what are these people doing to this dog to make it behave like this? Mm. Usually that was the problem. Mm. Not always. Yeah, and... You know, you definitely hear this from anyone who works with animals. It's like if you have anxious pets, you're generally going to have anxious owners. That's just the um, – because of, and it's like what you were saying before about um, rubbing off on uh, – people and um yeah i think most of our pets are and this is what we like about them is they're very interactive with us on an emotional level so now you know dogs can sense when you're having a bad day and, and quite often they'll come and uh, comfort you i don't yeah. know whether cats do that kind of behavior too i'm not really a cat person but certainly um and i think probably horses and uh, goats and donkeys and uh, probably birds. The birds are incredibly uh, clever. I'm sure that they are um, uh, connected in some way to to our uh, um, state of mind somehow. Mm. Well, cats are famous for getting all over people when they're sick. That's kind of um, if if you're sick and you're laid up in bed, then the cat will come and cuddle up and. Uh, more so than usual kind of a thing. And remember that Stephen King story, Dr. Sleep, how the cat would always know when people were dying and it would sit with them on the bed in the in the hospital? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, and that's how thing. the staff would know someone was going to die because yeah. the cat would go to their room. And, in fact, there are a lot of nursing homes that have dogs and uh, there's plenty of stories um, around the incredible, almost uh, psychic ability of pets, and once mm. again, I'll, I'll mention Rupert Sheldrake, Professor Rupert Sheldrake, who's written many books and done uh, years and years of research on the ability of pets to uh, psychically detect <laughs> what their owners are doing, the comings and goings of their their owners. I've definitely had moments where it seemed as if a an animal was able to pick up on on my vibe, my energy. I had an experience with one of the dogs where she came up to me and normally this dog is very affectionate all over me, very cuddly. Um, but she, on this particular afternoon, I'd come home in a in a very foul mood and I didn't want um, to experience the kind of interaction that she normally would give. And when she walked up to me, she looked up at me and then she walked away. And I think she just picked up on the fact of, like, without me doing anything or you know, saying anything, but she just picked up on the mood that I was in and she was going to give me a wide berth, um, which I appreciated. And when it comes to, like, really good relationships with, with pets, I think in the past, like, when I've dealt with dogs that are meant to be difficult or aggressive or whatever, one of the strategies that I've used, I don't know whether it works or not, but it seems to work, is that I've tried, when I first encounter them, if I've been told that they're difficult or whatever, aggressive, I try to put my mind into a very neutral state, like uh, just a very kind of blank, detached, almost sort of meditative state where it's this kind of like 
be the observer kind of idea. And that has proven to be that state of being is shown to be like a good foundation for uh, getting off on a good foot with the animal in question. Because I think if you're approaching something with all sorts of expectations of like, it's going to be bad, it's going to go wrong, or it's this, or it's a bad dog, or whatever, then that's going to color the um, how things are going forward. I mean, it's like that old expression, you give a dog a bad name, you know. And and this re- ties it back into another Sheldrake uh, thing I learned about through Sheldrake, which was that they these two different test sub test groups were given. Uh, a set of rats that was the same kind of rats, but one group was told that this certain one of the rats was like this real special rats, like these super smart rats, right? And so the rats that were perceived to be better, even though they weren't, did better in the tests because the people handled them with more uh, care and like, I guess, projected that energy into them of like, this is a good rat, this is a special rat. And thusly, they lived up to that perception. So it's interesting and it's something to really remember with um, when it comes to to your animals is how much um, your perception will then play into, um, you know, how, how they are. Yeah, well, I think so. they're incredibly insightful. Uh, animals uh, much more than we give them credit for and in ways we don't understand. And when we've talked about this before, the the sensory um, abilities of animals are vastly different from humans. They can see, hear, smell, taste and a whole lot of other senses we don't even have. Um, (laughs) The world around them um, and, you know, that that would give them... uh, some quite interesting and probably insights into you know our behaviour and what's going on for us, and probably explains a lot of these um, uh, strange um, uh, abilities sometimes that dogs appear to have. Yeah, and people people can underestimate a lot of the time because, and it's like what we talked about before, because they don't have the same mind as us because they have a mind that does not have, like, language in the way that we do. It does not have memory in the way that we do. We People will perceive them as being less intelligent, but it's a different kind of intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. I so, mean, we look at our way of thinking of being the pinnacle, and yeah, how yeah, often yeah. do you hear that, that we're the, like the super species on the, on the planet, right? But... In fact, if you can't take into account the abilities of um, all of these creatures around us, we're probably quite retarded. <laughs> um, and, you know, I often think that when I look at the birds, you know, they're all around us sitting on poles and in trees looking down at us. Well, what must be, they be thinking about us, or watching us go, going about our lives? I mean, we look like ants to them, yeah. I guess. So I grew up in uh, on an army base uh, up the Hunter Valley, which is basically in the bush, so I was kind of surrounded by critters. And we had, um, you know, we had dogs and um, I had lo- lots of, uh, I was very interested in animals when I was a little kid, but I was kind of surrounded by a lot of kind of country type farm animals and, uh, you know, snakes and stuff like that. How about you, Riley? You, you kind of grew up in the city, didn't you? That's right. 
I did. We we moved to the suburbs when I was seven, but we were in, in apartments in Bondi before that. And I had a couple of cats. Uh, well, one of them belonged to my grandma because she was living with us for a bit. But um, my relationship with animals was not good at that point. I wasn't one of those kids who was, like, throwing rocks at birds or, like, a vi- like eviscerated, uh, what's the vivisecting creatures and stuff like that. Yeah, because um, uh, in my experience, those kids were always around when I was when I was little. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure they still do exist. But I you didn't pull uh, the wings of any flies or anything like that. No, I didn't do but, stuff like yeah. that. I um, but I was just too. I would was too close. Like I would get too in their face and want to be like physically imposing, like picking them up and uh, cuddling them all the time. And I think the abominable snowman from Looney Tunes is a good example of this characteristic. So, Ooh, what a cute little pink bunny rabbit. Just what I always wanted, my own little bunny rabbit. I will name him George, and I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him. I'm not a bunny rabbit. And pat him and pet him and... You are hurting me. Put me down, please. And rub him and caress him and... I ain't no bunny rabbit! Not a bunny rabbit, George? But I was able to heal that relationship as I got older, uh, and part of that came from the neighbours next door having this corgi who was just such a wonderful dog, and she was really forgiving of my um, ways. And this... How old were you when you... Started to improve? Yeah. Um, Probably about eight years old. Huh, pre-teens. I think for me, my, my connection to the natural world really seemed to happen around... It was a little bit later than that. It was pretty around 10 or 12. Mm. Now, perhaps a major factor these days in regards to our relationship with dogs uh, is that we've got these councils now which dictate so many areas of our life. And one of those areas that they care, they've come down quite hard on in the last few decades is pet ownership and they have, um, what do you call them, agents now who roam around in cars, dog catchers who will basically kidnap your dog and hold him hostage at the local pound and you'll have to pay up uh, sometimes a large fee to get your pet back. And so we don't really have a culture where dogs can roam around much these days, but certainly when I was a kid it was very common to have dogs running around all over the place. And, yes, uh, in my childhood, the the corgi who lived next door, who was... We used to look after her about four times a year when they'd go away on holidays. So she was basically our dog. Like, she considered our home her home. But anyway, she would often just be left outside to chill out the front of the house, and she would just take herself out to wander around the neighbourhood and this is not neglect because she was an old dog and she used to be a stray and she knew how to handle herself and she was very popular very known in the neighborhood like she was well loved people would recognize her and she was more well known than the family you know that that owned her sometimes there'd be complaints because sometimes she would um go into the school and so the school would call up 
the the house and you know get them to come and get her but uh, for the most part there wasn't issues with her um, freedom and I was thinking about the fact how that so she died in 2007 which was 15 years ago so this is basically the last time I reckon in this current era in the west in this country that that a dog could get away with living that kind of lifestyle what do you reckon yeah, times have changed, and I guess it's part of city life too. I mean, I don't. I'm uh, just trying to think. It's been difficult for me. I have had uh, several dogs in my lifetime um, living in the city, and it's all, it's been a constant uh, a problem. And I guess uh, that that thing about giving them freedom—you can't just let them roam around. And um, you know, it's another interesting thing about what we see as far as people's interaction with animals because most people have them locked in their their house mm. <laughs> uh, most of the time and you, you see them walking them. But other than that, you mm. don't really appreciate exactly how many uh, pets are actually living with people. <laughs> yeah. And you don't really see their relationship with them either. And there's some people that never take their dogs for a walk. And the dogs become like conditioned to where that's normal, except obviously that's animal neglect in a sense. Yeah, not taking care of their needs. And that's kind of part of the deal. And perhaps we'll get on to talking about that deal uh, in coming episodes mm. on this topic. There is a contract uh, between us and our pets. And even though it's unwritten, it's very real. And it goes back a long way and we can talk about this this agreement that we have with these animals and what we get out of it and what they get out of it. Yeah. I think in a lot of terms the uh, the contract's being in, ignored by people in, uh, in the modern world. Yeah. Yes, and it's hard. Well, you know, we're um, cooped up in our little cubicles as well. Yeah, so. we're not a lot different from the pets, right? Yeah. <laughs> Stay in your concrete box. Yeah. You don't need to go anywhere. Well, folks, we've come coming up for the end of the show. Uh, we thank you for listening to us. As always, John and I, we're going to be back in the driver's seat next week with some more uh, discussions about animals. That's right, folks. Pets. We love them. What would our lives be? We make great pets. And a great song.
You're listening to People Powered Radio, proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The Community Broadcasting Foundation resources community-owned and operated media stations just like this one that connect people and tell vital local stories so that we all enjoy a more vibrant, inclusive Australian culture and healthy democracy. Find out more about our work at cbf.com.au.